And there is actually something so very intimately personal for you tonight regarding this baby born in Bethlehem that I hope that you would be able to open up your heart to be able to see. And rather, probably the better hope would be that you would ask the Lord to open up your heart, that you could see uh, how this story affects you. And I would encourage you, uh, especially leaders of your home, to take time either tonight or tomorrow morning, maybe before a bunch of festivities begin that often sideline who Jesus is and why he came, that you would take time and crack open one of the Gospels and read the Christmas story. May I recommend Luke? It's a good one. Uh, just open up to ch- uh, Luke chapter 1. And, uh, and that way you can do the story of the nativity on your own. I'm going to take you to Paul bringing a little explanation uh, about uh, the Christmas story to us in Galatians 4. Uh, so if you'll, if you'll glance up there with me, I think we've got the screen available for you, but Galatians 4, verse 4, it says, uh, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is all part of the gospel. Maybe you have heard that word a bit. Those of us that are Christians, we hear it often, but maybe you don't even really know what it is. For some, it's a genre of music on your iTunes playlist. You know, oh, gospel music. You know, usually people are in choirs and they're singing really loud, you know. And, uh, but gospel really speaks of the good news, the good news, uh, and it comes from the word evangelion or euangelion that speaks of the good news from the battlefield. So just put, take your minds there to a, to a battlefield or maybe if you're back behind the battle lines, maybe in a village and you're wondering how the battle's going and your fate hangs in the balance and here comes a rider on horseback with a big old smile on his face and great joy And he says, we've won, we've won, we've overcome the enemy, we are free, we are safe, we are redeemed, you know, and and the whole village would shout and church bells would ring, you know, and and, uh, that's that's what the gospel is. Uh, And the gospel, as John Stott said, is not good advice to men, but it's good 
news about Christ. It is not an invitation for you to do anything, but it's a declaration of what God has done. It's not a demand, it's an offer. And I want to bring that offer to you today. Not a demand or, you know, uh, something heavy to weigh upon your shoulders, but an offer, rather, of something that will take the weight off of your shoulders and bring great relief. So in our passage here, we have kind of the the cast of characters. We have uh, a bit of the plot. We have a bit of the objective of the Christmas story, of the gospel. And we're going to start out with the who of this story, okay? Uh, In just Galatians, Galatians focuses on four characters of the Christmas story. We've got God, the Father. We've got God, the Son. We've got a woman. And we've got sinners. Okay? So we've got the Father, the Son, a woman, and sinners. Then we ask ourselves, what do we see here? Well, we see God sending forth his own Son. That's something that is taking place here. It's the action, the verb of the bit. In the Greek, it's, it's translated literally that he sent forth out of heaven from himself. It speaks of the same word that when God sends forth the Holy Spirit to us. God sends forth from heaven of himself. What Paul is making sure that people understand when they read the letter to the Galatians is that the life of Jesus did not begin at Bethlehem. God was, uh, rather, Jesus was sent from heaven, sent from the Father. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born as a baby. And so this makes him different than anyone else. This makes him a hero like none other. I remember once Russell asked me, my oldest son, where was I before I was born? And the answer to him was, you didn't exist. Okay? You didn't exist. But Jesus, as a young lad there in Judea, might have asked, you know, hey, where was I before I was born? You know, he he knew he's God. And Mary would say, you know, right? There never was when you wasn't. All right? It was Alistair Begg that said, without ceasing to be what he was, that is God, he became what he was not, that is a man. So he continued to be God as he came to the earth, but he took on flesh, veiled in flesh. We sang it tonight, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. We're Prineville folk. We like us a good pot of chili. But I especially like some chili con carne, right? What does the con carne mean? means with the meat, right? With the, I'm sorry, it's a little gross, I know, but especially Nally's with the Tabasco. They did a good job on that brand. Chili con carne, it's with the meat, right? The incarnate, all right? What does that speak of? It speaks of God in the flesh, God incarnate, all right? And and so that's when God took on flesh. There in Bethlehem, uh, he came and dwelt among us. Check out what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 says. And this is nothing new to many of you that have been coming to Calvary on Sundays as we're going through John. We've been kind of hammering this home. 
I hope that your mind starts, when you start thinking of Christmas, I hope you start thinking of like Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 as a great Christmas verse. It's quoted from Psalm chapter 40. And it says, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body prepared for me. And it's believed that this, Hebrews 10.5, quoted from Psalm chapter 40, that this is the last words of God the Son, Jesus, before he kind of hopped into the, you know, the space capsule or whatever it was, you know, and was shot into the womb of Mary, okay? It's kind of like that astronaut who gives the final words to mission control, you know, before he gets into the spaceship and launches off. And what were his last words? He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire because bulls and the blood of bulls and goats would have just taken care of that but a body that you've prepared of me and then it just goes on to say i delight to be obedient so when i do give my life as a sacrifice it's going to be a perfect sacrifice it'll take away the sins of the world so we've got god sending the son in this incredible mission moving on the sent son was born pretty incredible right that sent son had a human birth just like every one of well, some of us i mean some of you are i don't know what happened in the birth canal but um this sent son was born emphasizes his humanity john chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was God. Okay, Jesus is the word, in case you're wondering, okay? Not the bird. The bird's not the word. Jesus is, okay? <laughs> the word was God, okay? And then verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. And so, Jesus, we're told in the scriptures, did not have an earthly beginning. That wasn't his original beginning, but he always was. And it's just a great Fancy little phrase, it's a little bit of a tongue twister, a lip smacker. There never was when he was not, okay? He always was. And so, he was in the beginning with God. And then you jump down a few verses to John 1.14. And the word became flesh in carne, okay? Right? Okay. The word became flesh. In heaven, I don't think Jesus could do this. You know, there was no flesh there, all right? Comes to earth, he's like, look at all the crazy things I can do, you know? All these crazy magic tricks, you know? And uh, Mary was totally impressed. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John was all about that. I've seen God. I've seen him. I've seen Jesus. And he was all about being an eyewitness. Check out Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So in his fleshness, there's this DNA and that he comes through the line of his, it's 14 greats, in case you're wondering. Great, 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 great. Great, okay. Grandpa, David, in case you're wondering, there's 14 greats before that, and you get back to Abraham, I think. It's been a while since I've done the math on that one, but don't start looking it up, Brian. Just trust me. It's 28 total, 28 greats, all right? He came out of the seat of his great-great-grandpappy, 
David. All right, that speaks again of his humanity that's coupled with his deity. The third thing we see in this text, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, is that he was born of a woman. Or as J.B. Phillips says in his awesome translation, he was born of a human mother. Estius says, the expression implies a special tangent of God in his birth as man, namely causing him to be conceived by the Holy Ghost. One preacher said, down the birth canal comes the incarnate deity. There's an image for you on Christmas you don't usually have, right? Down the birth canal. Talk to your kids about that one later. Comes the incarnate, this is a family service, I know. But Christmas carols help us understand all of this. You've got to love these Christmas hymns. We have a bit of a fly problem, even in late December. And the hymn says this, in yonder manger low, Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Now the Muslims, the the religion of Islam, takes a perverse twist on this and gets very graphic and immoral and imagines some sort of immoral union between God and Mary. But Luke chapter 1 verse 35 tells us that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He's explaining to Mary because she's thinking, how? As we all have thought at some point or another. And Luke helps us out with that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. This is all prophetic, uh, rather prophecy fulfilled from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Genesis 3.15 has been called the Proto-Evangelion. Anybody know what that might mean? Proto-Evangelion. Or the first gospel. It's the first mention of God's rescue plan to come and deliver us from the consequences of sin. And we have it clear back at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 When the father tells what's going to happen to rescue, he says, I will put enmity enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman, it's Eve, and between your seed and her seed. Notice seed is capital. And by the way, Galatians chapter 3 tells us that the seed was not multiple, like tons of seeds. It's one guy that's being referred to here, singular. This one descendant will come out of Eve. That descendant will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But the literal translation is, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus crushed Satan's power at the cross of Calvary while he was bruised and afflicted there at the cross. Check out Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. It's a little bit of a... uh, Bill Ingvall moment in the Old Testament, you know, when uh, Ahaz, King Ahaz is like, show me a sign, you know, and, and you know, the prophet kind of tosses out a here's your sign moment, okay, no, Bill Ingvall, nobody, Jeff Fox, you're more of a Jeff Foxworthy guy, I can tell, Ron White, don't even go there, Tyler, okay, but here's the sign, verse 14 tells us, Isaiah chapter 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. You guys know what Emmanuel means, right? I think it's right there. Ooh, it's not in this version, which is translated God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse evil and to choose good. So when Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that he was born of a woman, it's a reference to the prophet Isaiah telling King Ahaz, here's your sign, a woman shall conceive, rather a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Martin Luther knew that what Paul was talking about here that he has a virgin in mind, is obvious, okay? Now, let's check out what else our Galatians 4 passage has to tell us about the significance of the the birth of the Christ child. When he was born, Galatians 4, 4 tells us that he was born under the law, okay? He was born under the jurisdiction of the law. This son who would be born of a virgin would be born as a Jew, who would be subject to the law. And if you were reading Galatians, if you just had the time to read it right now, you'd have a whole lot of context having to do with Abraham, who's the receiver of the covenant promise. And then you've got Moses, who was the receiver of the law. And then you see, as you read the stories of Abraham and Moses, that now you need a savior, one who is the promise and who will silence the law's condemnation and bring reminder of a new and better covenant, okay? Um, and then for the sake of time, because this is a family service and you guys are all ready to go home and, you know, get all snug as a bug in a rug, we also read that he came under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law. This shows the purpose of his coming. He came as a cute little baby, you know, 10 pound, 8 ounces there in Bethlehem, from in, sitting in Mary's bosom, with a purpose, with a plan, so that he might redeem, that he might be the hero, be the rescuer. Look what Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4 says. What the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, we even see that in these day and age, all sorts of laws being put on us, mandates being put on us, and it's just not accomplishing what we want it to accomplish. Because even the best laws on the best days, they don't stop the problem that's going on deep inside our heart that is a, has a deep kernel of a sin problem. What the law could never do, even the law of Moses, because of the weakness of our flesh, God ended up doing it for us by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came just like us. Eyes and ears and mouth and nose. Jesus had head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Okay, he's just like us, all right? And he came to live out what we could never live and pay a price that he never owed so that we could be purchased and redeemed, okay? The incarnate son, Galatians 4.4 tells us that he purchased our redemption. And here's the highlight that I want to get at that I was kind of building up to on Sunday in Sunday's sermon. When did all of this happen? It says in Galatians 4.4 at the beginning, it was when the fullness of the time had come when the complete and perfect time had come have you ever had one of those moments where someone just shows up and you go perfect timing and he's like man you know 
You were running late. I was running late. It ended up working out. Perfect timing. Well, in Jesus' case, it was lickety-split. Perfect timing when the fullness of the time had come. As Ecclesiastes 3 says, there's a time under heaven for every season. G.K. Chesterton tells the story of him being a larger man in London wearing a big old coat on a windy day. And as he's walking through the London wind, the coat kind of flops up in his face and kind of blocks his view. And he bangs into a man carrying a giant grandfather clock. G.K. Chesterton fell down on the ground, looked up and said, why can't you wear a wrist watch like everybody else? I didn't even know there were wrist watches back then, but... But when you're speaking of time, it's important for us. And, and in heaven and in the great chronology of it all, there's a perfect time to what God is doing. Jesus did not come haphazardly. Maybe I'll come here and maybe I'll come there. And you know what? He's still not coming haphazardly. When he's going to come again, it's going to be at just the perfect time with his second coming as well. In the first coming, he didn't come a moment too late and he didn't come a moment too soon didn't matter that uh, there was no internet back then, no jet airliners, no TV broadcasting systems to, to send his message around. A lot of us maybe would think this would have been a better time for him to come. No, it was the perfect time right back then. I love this uh, quote that it was when history reached the crescendo or when God's plan had crested. It was at that precise moment, like a surfer sitting on his board waiting for that next set of waves to come and he sees them begin to come and he gets down on his belly and he begins to paddle and he keeps his eye on that surf and when it begins that wave begins to crest he hops up on his feet and there's this perfect ride jesus was in that perfect ride in the moment that he came as galatians 4 tells us it was at the perfect fullness of the time it was as i like to call a divine appointment it was Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown who said, Had Christ come directly after the fall in the garden, the enormity and deadly fruits of sin would not have been realized fully by man. So as to feel his desperate state in need of a savior, sin was fully developed. Man's inability to save himself by obedience to the law, whether that of Moses or that of conscience, was completely manifested. By various arrangements in the social and political, as well as the moral world, had fully prepared the way for the coming Redeemer. God often permits physical evil long before he teaches the remedy. The smallpox had for long committed its ravages before inoculation, and then vaccination was discovered. It was essential to the honor of God's law to permit evil long before he revealed the full remedy. As we have the worship team come back up to close for us. It's incredible to examine human history and to look at how the time that Jesus came was the perfect timing for the advancement of the gospel throughout the world. There was what was called the Pax Romana, which was about 200 years of an interesting Roman peace that really paved the way for the gospel to be able to be spread throughout the world. There was the Roman road situation where there were these beautiful Roman roads. It was once said that all roads lead to Rome. It was perfect so that the gospel could get to Rome and shoot out from Rome and spread throughout the world. It was perfect that the Greek language was in use and provided a perfect cohesive 
way to share the message of the gospel in all, in all of its tenses and forms, of all of its imperatives, and all of its showings of the grace of God. It was a perfect time because people were sick and tired of these Greek and Roman gods who promised so much wrath and promised so much power, but never showed up when you needed them. And so when Paul went to Athens and shared about the unknown God that they knew that they needed to worship, but they didn't know quite who he was, they knew he was over all these other gods. And Paul was able to point out this unknown God is Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And he was able to preach the gospel there in Athens. The fullness of the time. Even when Jesus came to the earth, there was a fullness of the time within the fullness of the time. As he walked around the earth and he healed people and he spoke to people, people wanted to set him up as the Messiah, as the king that would take over from the Romans. People wanted to, uh, you know, hail him as that emperor of Judea. But he knew that his time was not yet come until Passover, the third year of his ministry, when he would lay his life down as a ransom for sin. And so as we celebrate Christmas this year, we want to remember that Jesus came at just the right time. There's something special about that. Perfect timing. He came at just the right time to redeem us from the curse of the law. None of us could obey the law. Many of us have tried. And as James says, you break one little bit of that law and you're guilty of breaking all of it in totality. And you need salvation. Not only did Jesus come to deliver us from the curse of sin and of the law. He came to save us from the penalty. And part of this whole fullness thing about the perfect timing of Jesus coming. Is that after he heals us and forgives us and delivers us from the penalty of sin. He redeems us to himself to be in relationship with him. And now for the last 2,000 years, part of this perfect timing is he has been sending people all across the globe to tell others of this incredible story. And he has a role for you in that. He has a role for you, even this Christmas, to make some Facebook posts that just tell of the wonders of his love. The great story of God incarnate. Just make a little post, I dare you. Some about how awesome Jesus is and how incredible it is that he became flesh and dwelt among us and lived a life that I could never live and paid a debt that I owed. And now I can come to him as he's purchased me as his own. That's what verse 5 says in our text. We don't have time to get to it tonight. But he adopts us as his sons, redeeming us to himself. And now we live in this era of humanity where Jesus is at the door waiting to come back he's at the door he's ready to go he's waiting for the father to give the go-ahead to come back for his second advent but he's waiting for this era of human history of church history where we get to be a part of his plan and we get to go out and tell just like the shepherds on that first noel the shepherds went out and told everybody that they'd seen jesus and that's the, the moment of history that we live in as well. And one day he will come again. 
And he will come in power. He will come in glory. He will not come lowly and in a manger. He will not come riding on a donkey. He will come in power and might. He will come on a white stallion. We're ready to see that, aren't we? Maybe rear up a little bit, you know. And he's going to come as the judge. And he will judge the world in his righteousness. And he will call us to himself. There's a whole lot in that. But let's rejoice in all this, guys. Isn't this like the best epic of any human story that we've ever seen before? We're going to rejoice in it tonight. Beholding the wonders, the wonders of his love. Let's stand together.